This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. The industrialized world is on a collision course with nature, says Al Gore in this presentation from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford, from the Conversations Network's Social Innovation Channel. Hi, this is Elena Connor Snibby, and I'm Eric Nee. We are your hosts on Social Innovation Conversations. Today, we're excited to bring you another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation in the Stanford Discussions series. The Center for Social Innovation is a growing community of leaders committed to a just, prosperous, and sustainable world. The center offers leadership development programs and publishes our award-winning quarterly journal, the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. And now, here's our presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. I think it's no secret to anybody that our speaker today uh, was the 45th Vice President of the United States of America. He's also here to talk about the environment. We're very appreciative that the Environmental Management Club and View from the Top could get together and make this happen. It's a special session of View from the Top. Actually, Al, we thought we'd change it just a little bit to be View from oh so close to the very top. Everyone, everyone here knows, of course, that Mr. Gore was a candidate for president in the year 2000, and uh, he won a majority of the popular vote. And then for five excruciating weeks, the eyes of the world were on the state of Florida. We learned more than we wanted to know about butterfly ballots and hanging chads. And then the U.S. Supreme Court decided that Florida would go for Bush giving George W. Bush a majority in the Electoral College. There's also a public face that we all know about Al Gore. He's had a distinguished public career in public service. He grew up in Tennessee. He went to Harvard University. He got a bachelor's degree in government. Interestingly, his senior thesis, I'm told, was on the impact of TV on the conduct of the presidency. So maybe he was thinking about things already. <laughs> He left Harvard, volunteered for the Army, served in Vietnam, returned to his native Tennessee, where he was a newspaper reporter and a student. He was a student at Vanderbilt University at the School of Religion and a student at their School of Law. Interesting combination, tells you something about the man. And then he began a rather extraordinary career in electoral politics. In 1976, he was elected to the House of Representatives to represent Tennessee, his district. He served for four terms, eight years. Then he moved up to the big house. He ran for Senate. He was elected. He was re-elected so that he served eight years in the Senate as well. In fact, he was not only re-elected for Senate, but that year, some of you may have forgotten, 
he ran as well to seek the Democratic nomination for the presidency, and he did rather well. He got more than three million votes. He carried primaries in seven states and put himself, I suppose you could say, as kind of a national figure that therefore was no surprise that when the Democratic Party put together the winning ticket in 92, it was the Clinton-Gore ticket. And he served eight years as vice president. That's the public side. Now, it's not surprising that Al would have pursued a career in public service when you consider his family. His father was a famous and highly respected U.S. Senator, Al Gore Sr., who, of course, also represented Tennessee. So I would assume he learned lots of political wisdom at the knee of his father, learned how to reach and communicate with audiences, how to connect and resonate. For example, his father had a tough campaign one year against a guy in opposition named McKellar. I'm told there were big billboards in Tennessee that said, the thinking feller votes for McKellar. <laughs> the Gore camp had to react to this. Pretty soon thereafter, they erected their own big set of billboards, said, think some more and vote for Gore. <laughs> Now that he's left politics, you may wonder, well, what's he up to? You know, what kind of person is he outside the political arena? He's actually, according to my sources, a person of rather amazing versatility. And you may wonder, well, why would he come to Stanford, where he's been here many times, actually? Well, he, first of all, there are a lot of reasons. Number one, I'm told, and I've confirmed, he loves basketball. <laughs> Not a bad player himself, and in these congressional games that went on all the time where they locked out two hours for time, he always had the two hours. He also, though, of course, knows the hazards of combining the life of a vice president with the life of basketball and trying to bring basketball into the arena. He, uh, one time, you know, when you're a vice president, every speech, every night, people listen to every word you say. He gave a talk in Washington shortly after the Bulls with Michael Jordan, with last-minute heroics, won another NBA championship. And he wanted to bring this into his speech at the audience. He said, uh, I tell you, that Michael Jackson is unbelievable. <laughs> Just unbelievable. So there are risks in these kind of things. He could be here at Stanford because it's been reported that he invented the internet. Why not? come to Silicon Valley. But in truth, in truth, 25 years ago in Congress, Al really popularized the term, the information superhighway. And he really was a key figure in seeing that there was adequate funding to build what is today the internet. He's a board member at Apple. And indeed, when Steve, who's one of our prior view from the top speakers, announced that Al was joining the board, he went out of his way to point out, among other things, that Al was an avid Mac user, does his own video editing in Final Cut Pro. A little bit beyond most of you, I think. <laughs> oh, okay, I'm sorry. He's a senior advisor at Google. His friend Bill Joy being here gives you some idea that he knows his way around the world of technology. So that's a side of him that's pretty interesting. He's also been in the media, a rumored participant in a business venture to create perhaps the next big thing in television. He may be out here to talk with our own 
Joel Hyatt, our beloved lecturer at the GSB for five years. In fact, Joel thinks so highly of Al, he's stopped being a lecturer for a while, a thing he loves, to be potentially engaged with Al in a business venture. Or maybe it's just he got so used to the words VP, the letters, you know, the VP this, the VP that, everyone's calling him the VP, that he's a visiting professor. Because <laughs> he's really been doing that. He's a visiting professor at UCLA, at Fisk, at Middle Tennessee State. And to some extent, that's his role here tonight. He's a visiting professor. He's certainly here to inform us and enlighten us about a topic that he really is quite expert in. He wrote a book a number of years ago called Earth and the Balance. It was a comprehensive and insightful book on the environment. And as you heard in the introduction, this is kind of a marriage of View from the Top and the Environmental Management Club. I guess there's just two final things I'd say about Al as I call him to the stage. They really relate to me personally because they're probably the two things, maybe the only two things we have in common. One is we're both grandfathers. And apart from that being just about the greatest thing in the world, which I can tell you, um, there's something about having grandchildren and looking in their eyes that makes the preservation and protection of the environment terribly urgent and terribly personal. Secondly, as an American, I have to tell you that as a student of leadership in this country, I just felt so strongly that his action in December of 2000, which you can only possibly even remotely imagine, you know, here is something that was so close to you and so important in your life and yet was not to be. The personal heartache that that must have engendered. To summon the emotional strength to go before the American people, really before the people of the world, with a lot of conviction and passion and urge people to come together, to work together for the good of the country. I have to tell you, an act of statesmanship we don't often see, a profile in courage, genuinely, and a real example of leadership. Please give a warm Stanford Business School welcome to Al Gore. Al. Thank you very much, Dean Joss, for that uh, very warm introduction. And I want to thank um, <laughs> Lisa and Angela uh, and the others who invited me uh, to be here. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm very touched that uh, a lot of close friends uh, came. You mentioned uh, Joel Hyatt and Susan Hyatt, Stephen Lorene. Uh, Jobs uh, are here, and Bill Joy, John Gage, uh, and some others uh, that I pr probably should single out also, but to the Environmental Management Club and to uh, those at the business school, thank you uh, very, very much. Um, I want to talk about the global environment. The late Carl Sagan used to say that the atmosphere, I mean, uh, the most fragile part is the atmosphere, and Carl Sagan used to say that the thinness of the atmosphere is similar to uh, a coat of varnish on a globe. You know, it's just, it's not that many miles, just a few miles from here to the top of the sky. And that space is relatively small. Okay, so this is the greenhouse effect. The sun's energy comes in as a hot shortwave radiation, and then a lot of it is re-radiated into space 
in infrared radiation, and of the amount that goes back into space, some of it is uh, trapped by the atmosphere. The reason I first got interested in this is that when I was a student, an undergraduate student, I, I, I was privileged to have a professor named Roger Revelle from California who was the first person to measure carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And after the first seven or eight years, he took the results and showed them to this small class that I, that I happened to be a part of. And this is, what, this is the image that, cap, that captured my attention. And this, these are the first few years of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that were measured, 1957, 58, when the International Geophysical Year started this. And uh, there are two things uh, about this. Number one, the peaks just keep going up. And the second thing is, each year, it goes up and down. And the first thing that, you know, I was curious about is why in the heck does that happen? And the answer is, if you look at the land mass of the Earth, very little of it is south of the equator. Most of it is north of the equator. And so most of the vegetation is north of the equator. And so when it is wintertime in the northern hemisphere, the leaves fall, or the deciduous leaves fall, and, they, and that exhales carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and the amount goes up. When it comes back around to the springtime, the leaves pop out, and it sucks it back in. Uh, and, and so when it is winter in the northern hemisphere, the concentration goes up, and when it's summer, it goes down. So each year, it goes up and down. And so uh, this is basically when I saw it, and I, I watched it keep going up. And so, you know, that's kind of uh, unusual. Last year in uh, the summer, you remember the, the heat wave in Europe, and uh, 15,000 people died. A friend of mine named Lonnie Thompson at Ohio State goes around and uh, looks at mountain glaciers around the world. Within 15 years, there will be no more ice on Kilimanjaro, no more snows of Kilimanjaro. Virtually every glacier in the entire world, with the exception of a very few in Scandinavia, uh, are melting rather rapidly. Lonnie doesn't go just to watch them melt. He goes to dig uh, core drills, and they put the drill down through the ice and pull it back up, and they can measure each year because each year is clearly demarcated. Glaciers really do not care about politics. They don't respond to ideology. They just either get colder or warmer. Some of the skeptics of global warming say, well, there was a medieval warming period, and that just shows that this is just a normal cyclical thing. Well, yes, there was. But compared to what's going on now, uh, you can see the, the, uh, the scale of it. Uh, a few years ago, uh, these hikers were climbing the Alps between Italy and Austria. There's a 5,000-year-old man. And, <clears throat> you know, why, why didn't we notice that guy before? He was actually from 3000 BC, as they later determined. And the reason they didn't see him before is the ice hasn't melted there before. Now, this is Antarctica where 95% of all the fresh water in the world is located. And there's so much of it that the ice is stacked up two miles high. And so they drill down through all of this ice and then read the results year by year. And they can measure not only the temperature, which they get by measuring the ratio of 
oxygen isotopes, but they also can take the little bubbles of atmosphere trapped in each year and, and measure the carbon dioxide content. They have now gotten all the way to the bottom, and this is a relatively recent uh, study going all the way back 400,000 years, and carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere have never previously gone above 280 parts per million. Now, there are time lags. The exact relationship between temperature and carbon dioxide is not precisely understood. Surely there's not a one-for-one -one relationship. But those who say that, that it's perfectly all right to do this are, in my opinion, insane. It is not perfectly all right to do this. This is reckless. In Antarctica, you hear from time to time that there was a, you know, an iceberg the size of Rhode Island or so forth. There have actually been a bunch of them. The, the second largest accumulation of ice on the planet is Greenland. If all of Greenland melted completely, then the sea level would go up over 20 feet worldwide. And parts of it are melting very rapidly now. The Arctic is different in several respects. It's ocean surrounded by land, not land surrounded by ocean. I went up there a couple of times in a submarine that has these special uh, wings that, you know, normally they're flat, they rotate up, so they cut like a knife when the submarine surfaces. And uh, the military finally agreed to release the secret uh, data that they had compiled since 1957 when the first journey under the ice took place. That's the only record of ice thickness in the Arctic. And what it shows is that the ice has been melting. In the last 40 years, it has thinned by 40%. When ice melts, the sun's rays are absorbed instead of reflected, so it sets up a positive feedback loop, and it eats against the edge of the, of the melting ice and it accelerates the process. Now here's a big point. Some scientists are now saying that within 50 years, in summertime, the entire ice cap in the Arctic Ocean will disappear so that it will be open ocean. Now that's really significant, not because it raises sea level, because floating ice doesn't raise sea level when it melts. Its mass has already displaced uh, the same amount of water that is uh, made up of, you know, when it melts. But here's why it's really significant. When the ice cap is in place, as it is now, the sun's rays are reflected more than 95% of all the incoming solar energy bounces off the Arctic ice cap as if it was a large mirror. When it is open ocean, then more than 90% is absorbed. So what happens is the increase in temperature at the top of the world is much larger than in the world as a whole. The average temperature of the Earth hovers in this range. It's going up, uh, you know, like nine of the ten hottest years in recorded history have been within the last 12 years. Uh, now, they, they've only kept those records since the Civil War, basically, so 
except for the glacial records, and et cetera. But, but that's the average. An increase of five degrees Fahrenheit actually means an increase of one degree at the equator and 12 to 15 degrees in the Arctic. So that puts more energy in the system. And to go back just for a moment, the entire global climate system is an engine for redistributing heat from the equator to the poles. And, and that's accomplished through ocean currents and wind currents and storm systems. And the pattern by which that takes place is like a chaotic system. It has a lot of variation, but within a, a relatively stable boundary condition. But when you have an increase in the ratio of temperature at the equator to temperature at the poles, at the North Pole, of this amount, then the amount of energy that has to be transferred is radically changed and the pattern changes. But you get more energy in the system, stronger storms, hurricanes up to 50% stronger on average, more precipitation because there's more evaporation off the oceans. And this is actually uh, a fact that's not widely known. But in the last 100 years, there has been approximately a 20% increase in precipitation in North America. And that's because of more evaporation off the oceans. And the same phenomena that evaporates moisture out of the oceans and feeds uh, uh, storms uh, uh, with rain and snow also evaporates soil moisture. This is what's projected with the doubling of CO2, which is expected within 50 years. If we don't act soon, we're, we're barreling right through a doubling toward a quadrupling, and this is a baked world. A much larger percentage of the moisture falls in one-time storm events rather than gradually. This is the insurance industry's uh, calculation. Swiss Re, one of the two biggest reinsurance companies in the world, uh, is really, you know, screaming bloody murder about, uh, you know, we got to do something about global climate change. This is why the losses due to um, weather and flood uh, catastrophes have been going up. Now, some of that is because there are more people building and living in floodplains and but a lot of it is due to the, the, the change in storms. Everybody talks, about, a lot of people talk about global warming or the climate crisis as if it is a, a gradual increase with effects that are steady over time. This is a nonlinear system. Some of you have seen the uh, news stories about uh, people predicting and worrying about a new ice age. Have you seen that? And, and you know, it makes me want to scratch my head. What in the heck is that about? And there's a new movie coming out, uh, uh, Memorial Day, that's sort of based on that premise. It's based on a scenario that scientists actually really do worry about. And here, here is why. There is a, a global ocean current that is interconnected. And some people call it the, uh, the, the, the ocean conveyor belt. And the, the engine or pump that drives the world ocean current is in the North Atlantic. The Gulf Stream heads north and then encounters the very cold winds coming off the Arctic over Greenland 
and the amount of evaporation that takes place is enormous. And the steam clouds rise up and are carried by the prevailing winds over to Europe, and that causes the cities in Europe to be much warmer than you would think from a North American perspective they, they ought to be. Okay, twice in 11,000 something years ago, 8,200 years ago, this, this stopped, this pump stopped. Once when the melting glaciers flooded fresh water into this uh, area and short-circuited the pump, that actually happened twice, and the steam stopped and the warming of Europe stopped, the world once went back into an ice age suddenly for another thousand years. Uh, and, and when it stops, and then, then it gets uh, cold again. I mentioned the latitude lines. Paris is on the same latitude as Vancouver. New York is on the same latitude as Madrid. The average temperatures in, in Europe are just much higher because of that phenomena. They have recently measured a, uh, a decrease in the salinity of, uh, of that area in the North Atlantic and some other measurements that make them worried. But it's a nonlinear system, that's the point. Nobody really knows uh, how it's going to play out, but there will be surprises. Now, what does this all add up to? There really is a collision between our civilization uh, and, and, and the Earth's environment, and there are three factors that cause it. The first is population, uh, and that, of course, is a, a, a well-known uh, phenomena, uh, and it happens mostly in the developed uh, world. It took, um, you know, 10,000 generations until my baby boom generation was born before we reached a little over 2 billion. And in, in, in my lifetime, we've gone to 6.3 billion, and we're headed up to uh, 8 to 9 billion. It's a big change happening right now. It's driving food demand and water demand and energy demand. Uh, and it's causing the rapacious consumption of natural uh, resources. Uh, forests uh, are one clear example, and that also adds to the CO2. This is where the, the uh, greenhouse gases come from. We produce a lot of them, more than South America, Central America, Africa, the Middle East, and China put together. This is not rocket science. The second cause is the technological revolution, which has brought us many fantastic benefits in uh, the areas of medicine and communications, uh, etc., but also some unintended consequences. When old habits are married to new technologies, sometimes the consequences are unexpected. Warfare is an old habit, but from spears and bows and arrows, uh, to gunpowder, that was a big transition. And, and um, modern warfare uh, had new consequences, particularly when nuclear weapons were invented. Now, the consequences of that old habit are utterly transformed. And the same thing is true when we have always relied on the exploitation of the earth for sustenance. The plow made a big difference, irrigation made a big difference, but now we have so many new ways to magnify this. Um, the former Soviet Union let irrigation get out of hand when they um, 
tapped two rivers in Central Asia uh, for growing cotton, and they diverted the rivers from what used to be uh, the Aral Sea. We can transform the Earth's surface now in unprecedented ways. Technology uh, threatens to overwhelm and dwarf our, our, uh, the rest of our lives. We can exploit niches of the environment that we could never exploit before. The third uh, change that has changed the relationship between humankind and the Earth is our way of thinking. Uh, let me use this example. When I was in um, the sixth grade, one of my classmates pointed to a map at the front of uh, geography class and said, did South America and Africa ever fit together? And the teacher said, of course not. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and that uh, student went on to become a drug addict and a ne'er-do-well. <laughs> the teacher went on to become science advisor in the current administration. <laughs> um, You know, not until the 1960s did they really officially decide that continental drift was real. The teacher had an assumption in his mind that continents are so big they obviously don't move. And we have an assumption in our minds that the Earth is so big, we obviously can't have any big, meaningful, harmful impact on it. Illustrating the philosophers saying that what gets us into trouble is not what we don't know, it's what we know for sure that just ain't so. Now. For 40 years after the Surgeon General's report made it very plain that smoking was a deadly threat to human health, there was a, an organized, well-funded effort to convince Americans and in the rest of the world that actually there was a lot of confusion about whether there was any linkage between smoking and disease. In fact, you know, doctors recommend and so forth. Some of the same uh, scientists who took money from the tobacco companies to do this, and they're continuing to do it. This is, a, uh, this is called Project White Coat. Uh, the goal is to resist and roll back smoking restrictions. A lot of money put up by the tobacco companies laundered through law firms and portrayed by people in the scientific community who are willing to say almost anything for money, there are a few of them, to confuse the public about the science, okay? Some of the same individuals who took money from the tobacco companies as part of this project are now taking money from some of the coal companies and oil companies to confuse the public about global warming. It's a massive effort, and it's well-funded. This is a pollster who uh, came out with this conclusion recently, that the environment is a big political issue. But here is how, to, how uh, the people who don't want to do anything about it can respond. Continue to make the lack of scientific certainty a primary issue by becoming even more active in recruiting experts sympathetic to your view. There is a massive effort focused right now with lots of money on doing this. And its purpose is to delay the point at which the American people say, hey, wait a minute. This is a big deal, and we have to do something about it. They don't want you to come to that conclusion.
and they want to pretend that there's more uncertainty than there really is. We actually have confronted a global environmental issue before and found a way to respond. This was the ozone hole above the Antarctic this past fall. It's still a huge problem, but we're solving the problem. The scientific evidence was presented and interpreted, and governments around the world took action, and a worldwide treaty was signed. And since it was signed, the chemicals that cause ozone depletion were reduced dramatically, with the United States of America playing the leading role. This is a huge success story. And we can do the same thing with the climate crisis. We can create jobs. We can have a whole new surge of economic activity. We have new sources of energy that can be exploited much more than they are now. In the last several years, we've already seen a big increase in the markets for solar and wind. And efficiency is, uh, uh, is an even bigger prospect. We can do the same thing with electrons that the information industries have done with photons. We can be much more precise where they come from and where they're going and how they flow and where. And if we turn our attention to it and devote the resources to it and have the political will to face this issue, we can not only do the right thing for your generation and those beyond you, we can also create a, a huge new economic opportunity. But we're at a crossroads right now. And if we continue on the current course, it leads to climate disaster. If we take the right decisions, we can solve this problem. But we have to uh, have the right values. And that's what the choice comes down to. Global stewardship. This actually comes from a previous White House uh, during the, uh, the term of the uh, current president's father. And this handout caught my attention because, well, for one thing, this view frame on balance, this is what they see as a critical choice. These are the scales. On one side, we have gold bars, wealth. Hmm. On the other side, we have the entire planet. <laughs> Hello? Is it really that hard a choice? And actually, it's a false choice. Because we're not going to have wealth if we lose the climate balance we need. And we can actually create wealth by doing the right thing to save the global climate. So it's kind of uh, frustrating. We have to take the right perspective. Voyager went out to explore the universe, and when it was 3.7 billion miles away from Earth, it turned around and took a picture of the Earth. And here's what Carl said. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you have ever heard of, every human being who has ever lived out their lives, the aggregate of our joy and suffering, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, every inventor and explorer, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species. 
lives there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic... Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. Think of how frequent there are misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds, our posturings, our imagined self-importance. All of those presumptions are challenged by this point of pale light. The Earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. So like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. It underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we have ever known. With the right perspective and the right values, we can keep our eye on the prize and win the struggle for our common future. Thank you very much. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. You've been listening to a presentation from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford. For additional practical and provocative ideas, check out the Center's award-winning publication, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, at www.ssireview.org. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Calantha Elsby. Our website editor was Bernadette Clavier. The series producer is Bernadette Clavier. My name is Eric Nee, and I hope you'll be joining us next time for another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Thanks for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.